Good afternoon. My name is Adisa Griffin, and I'd like to welcome you to today's webinar on ADHD and eating disorder. We are very pleased to welcome today's expert, Dr. Roberto Olivardia. Dr. Olivardia, if you'd like to begin. Dr. Olivardia. Hi, welcome. Yes, thank you for having me. Uh, this is a topic that I feel very passionately about because I come from working in the field of eating disorders for almost 20 years now. Um, and what I would start to see in my practice are individuals with eating disorders that didn't necessarily fit the traditional kind of presentation of what we would see with eating disorders and often would be very stuck in their treatment. And when it became clear that they had ADHD, the treatment progressed in uh, quite an interesting way and in, in, a, in a very good way and have often found that people with ADHD are prone to having issues with eating or can easily engage in unhealthy eating habits. And it turns out that there's actually a scientific literature that talks about this and I'll talk about that today as well as reasons why people with ADHD are prone to issues with food, with eating, and with weight. Um, for example, in 2005, there was a study done in a, in a clinic for obese teenage boys and girls, and it was a small sample of 13 boys and 13 girls who were uh, assessed for ADHD, and these were people, again, who were around the age of 13, and all of them were morbidly obese and did not meet the criteria for any mental health disorder like depression or obsessive-compulsive disorder. but found that 58% of them were found to have ADHD, which is significantly higher than what you would see in the general population. What was more interesting is of those children with ADHD, only 40% of them were diagnosed before the study, suggesting that, again, if, you, if we don't acknowledge the ADHD or if we miss it, that we could be missing a very vital component as to what could be contributing to uh, uh, either their obesity or an eating issue. In 2002, a similar study was done, a much larger study, of 215 bariatric patients. So these are adults who were getting gastric bypass surgery, so people who were morbidly obese and looking to get the surgery to uh, really reduce their weight. And what was interesting is that about a third of them had ADD, all of the inattentive type, and even more so when the researchers looked at just individuals who had a body mass index of over 40, which is in the morbidly obese category, found that the rate of ADHD actually went up to almost half of the individuals who had a BMI of over 40 had ADD. And not only in terms of prior to surgery, but even after surgery, the presence of ADHD affected the amount of loss, of weight loss, that individuals would have even after having as serious a surgery as gastric bypass. Uh, individuals who had ADD lost less pounds over time than those without ADD. And again, when looked at with individuals who had a body mass index of over 40, you found that uh, that rate, again, uh, was increased, that people with ADD lost less weight than people without ADD. And in fact, the patients with ADD had more treatment visits with longer duration than those uh, who did not have ADHD. And in 2004, uh, there was a study done that had looked at individuals who had eating disorders. So the previous two studies I mentioned looked at individuals who had been uh, at obesity clinics and assessed for ADHD. And this was a study looked at with individuals 
um, who had uh, ADHD and looked at for the presence of eating disorders and found that about 10% of this uh, sample of men and women who had ADHD had a history of an eating disorder, primarily binge eating disorder. And in fact, that those who had both ADHD and an eating disorder were also more likely to have another condition, such as depression or a substance abuse issue, in addition to their eating disorder. And that 10% rate is, again, higher than what you would see in the general population, suggesting, again, that there's some relationship there between having ADHD and developing eating issues or eating problems. So the question is, how can having ADHD predispose someone to developing an eating disorder or becoming obese? And just to quickly define that, what I mean by an eating disorder is we have primarily four categories in, in the mental health manual. You have anorexia nervosa, where someone is restricting their food intake or starving themselves. You have bulimia nervosa of individuals who eat an enormous amount of food, otherwise known as a binge. And, and it's a tremendous amount of food in a short period of time, and then they compensate for that binge through a purging method, which could be either self-induced vomiting, laxative use, the use of diuretics, uh, compulsive exercise. And then you have binge eating disorder, which is the binging, but without any compensatory strategies, without any purging. And then you have a category that we refer to as eating disorder not otherwise specified, which basically refers to individuals that don't neatly fit into those other three categories, but nevertheless have very uh, dysregulated, unhealthy relationships with food. And what, what we're talking about today in terms of ADHD tends to be more on the bulimia, binge eating disorder, eating disorder not otherwise specified category. That's not to say that people with ADHD uh, and anorexia are not uh, present, but it's less common than ADHD with the more impulsive eating disorders, such as uh, binging and bulimia nervosa. So one of the, if we understand ADHD, it actually makes perfect sense as to why people with ADHD are highly prone to eating disorders and problems with food. Uh, cognitively, having ADHD, people with ADD often have very poor organization skills, and to be a healthy eater, you have to be pretty well organized. You have to have a sense of uh, when you're going to eat. You have to be good at planning meals, at getting them ready. Um, and it's very hard for people with ADD to think in not now ways. Um, oftentimes, my clients will say that they start thinking about dinner and that they're supposed to be eating dinner. So it's 5.30, they're hungry. Um, if they're parents that they have children, their children are hungry, and it's at that time that they start thinking about it. And you're, if you want to eat at 5.30, you should be thinking about dinner at least an hour before to make sure that something might not need to be thawed or uh, you're making a recipe that you might need to get an ingredient at the store. And that's very hard for people with ADD. In addition, that people with ADHD can be poor regulators of, of various situations. Um, and we see this with other domains, things like sleep and, uh, and so forth. Food is, and eating healthy requires very good regulation skills. And part of that is being very observant of what your body needs and being aware of hunger cues and thirst cues. And for people with ADD, it can be very difficult. Um, they tend to have poor interoceptive awareness. And by that, we're referring to the awareness of your body, your in, the internal cues of your body. 
things like being hungry, being full, being thirsty. And for people with ADD, it can be very tough because if people with ADD are engaged in a very stimulating behavior, they might work right through lunch and dinner and then be hit with the, the wall of hunger if they're engaged in an activity uh, that they might literally be ignoring their hunger cues or not even really connecting to them, even if their stomach is growling. And if that happens, they could be setting themselves up actually for a binge. Our bodies are designed to survive. And so when we skip a meal, our body is going to start to crave certain types of foods. It's going to crave fats and carbs and sugars. Um, no one, when they're ravenously hungry, ever wants to eat a big bowl of broccoli. We all, you know, are going to crave breads and uh, and sugar and, and fattening kind of food. But if we're not aware of what our hunger cues are, then we're now dysregulating that whole system. And so people with ADD are more likely to ignore those physical cues. In addition, as I mentioned before, sleep is another very important regulatory mechanism in the body. And people with ADD um, often notoriously have very poor sleep habits. And the reality is that one way of, for people who need to lose weight, one of the first things that doctors recommend is make sure that you're sleeping well. Because when we are sleep deprived, our body recognizes that as a, as a threat. And it assumes if we're not sleeping, it's because a higher order need is, is threatened. And what is a higher order need is to eat or to drink water. And so our bodies naturally increase a hormone in our body called leptin. And what leptin does is basically hold on to our body fat and at the same time have us actually craving foods that are high in fat because our bodies want that in order to survive. And again, if you skip meals, which many of my ADD clients uh, will sleep through breakfast or uh, just don't eat breakfast, one of the worst things that you can do, your body will crave foods and crave more of it the next time that you eat a meal. In addition, as I mentioned before, uh, you, to regulate time and to eat, can, there's a redundancy in preparing meals. And I've heard many people with ADD say that although they recognize that they're hungry, it just feels very boring to constantly be thinking about what they have to make for their next meal. Um, and it is. It's a lot of work, breakfast, lunch, dinner, snacks in between, um, to be thinking about. People with ADD are all often gravitate to very high stimulating jobs where eating can sometimes be inconsistent or if you're uh, in a job where you travel a lot, a lot of people might eat while on the road and often rely on foods that generally aren't as healthy, like fast foods, for example. Um, certainly the period of hyperfocus where people with ADD will focus on a project that they're in or playing video games for hours. Um, they can go hours without eating. They're literally disconnected from that because their attention is just laser focused on what they're doing. But then once they stop the task, their body is starving. And at that point, they, it, it's such a setup for failure that it's very hard to make healthy eating choices when you're that hungry. Um, people with ADD are also more likely to eat while doing other things, which can lead to a poor regulation of food intake. One of the worst things that we can do is eat while watching TV. That studies have shown that people will definitely eat many more calories if they're watching TV and eating than when they're eating that same food 
at a kitchen table without the distraction of the television. Um, and so if you're eating while driving, if you're eating while watching TV, if you're eating while moving around, you're going to take in more calories. And over time, that actually adds up. And by the end of a year, that could amount to 20, 25 extra pounds. Also, people with ADD are, are, are sensory seekers. They're individuals that really respond to sensory cues in their environment. And food is a very sensual sort of experience. I mean, there's the visual of the food, there's the smell of it, there's the taste of it, there's the feel of it. It can be incredibly grounding. And for people with ADD, very, very grounding to a degree that it actually helps them kind of focus and ground themselves. And so I've heard many clients who talk about binge eating as a way of really just kind of drowning out all the noise in their head and all the chaos of their day into just focusing on them and their food. Emotionally, we've all been aware of sort of the emotional eater. And all of us can relate to times where we might have had a stressful day at work and we want to come home and just have some good comfort food. Um, that's certainly more true for people with ADD who uh, really can gravitate to things like food as a way of soothing themselves. And things like relieving anger and sadness and stress. But interestingly, the most common emotion that I hear from my ADD patients is that of boredom that often leads to uh, relying on food as a way of self-stimulating. That it may not even be that they had a stressful day. It may not be that they're particularly angry or sad, but there's not much going on. And what we know about the ADD brain is that it tends to have very low levels of dopamine, which is a neurotransmitter in the brain. And dopamine is the neurotransmitter that's responsible for reward type of behaviors. And so people with ADD are going to be drawn towards any activity that elevates levels of dopamine in the brain. And activities that do that are thrill-seeking behaviors like bungee jumping and loud music, and, um, but also any of the addictive type of behaviors, whether it's food, sex, drugs, all of those things um, become much more appealing to someone with ADD because it literally is self-medicating those levels of dopamine, which then do lead to a form of soothing and self-stimulation and reward. Uh, a lot of ADD patients will talk about eating as a relief from their racing thoughts and as a distraction from something that they might feel very unfocused on. I've had college students that talk about binging or purging or vomiting as a way of kind of focusing them before they study for a test or write a paper. And people with ADD are very outcome-driven, are very much connected to a feeling of instant gratification, and can be quite impatient and often need results very quickly. And that's very hard if you are trying to, let's say, lose weight in a healthy manner. Um, you, For men, it would be a maximum of two pounds a week. And for women, it's about one pound a week. And if you're losing more than that, over time, there's a guarantee that you're going to gain that weight plus some back. And again, so a lot of people with ADD are attracted to crash diets and quick fixes that just end up making it worse in the long run for them, as well as sticking to an exercise or weight loss plan can sometimes be very frustrating because there is a natural plateau phase that happens in uh, either an exercise plan or a weight loss plan, and that can be very frustrating to someone with ADD. And as I mentioned before, I've worked with many people with bulimia nervosa who, use, who binge 
primarily so that they can purge. And the purging, the vomiting, is sort of this euphoric stimulation that actually is kind of helps them really focus. Now, of course, it comes with severe medical consequences, um, primarily that it can cause cardiac damage and can eventually lead to death. And biologically, the ADD brain is, in a sense, biologically predisposed to having issues with food and with eating. Uh, one study by Alan Zemetkin, who did this uh, fascinating study of how the ADD brain literally metabolizes foods and metabolizes particularly glucose in the brain, has shown that the ADD brain it has a slower absorption process for glucose. So what that means basically is that the brain, it takes a little bit longer for the brain to send that signal to the body and vice versa that says, okay, we've had too much, and particularly we've had too much sugar. Um, and many people anecdotally that I know with ADD, and I have ADD myself, would report that, you know, um, that things that might that other people might think are way too sweet, like the amount of sugar that someone puts in their iced coffee, to someone with ADD might not seem that sweet. And there's actually a, a biological reason for that. Serotonin, which is another neurotransmitter, is present in a lot of foods like carbohydrates and sugars, which can actually give a feeling of well-being. And also, if people with ADD are more attracted to stimulating activity, to thrill-seeking activity, to high adrenaline activities, that uh, then what adrenaline does is it actually shuts down digestion and it diverts energy to the extremities of your body, your arms and your legs primarily. So for example, if you're eating while driving, your body is not digesting that food in the same way as it would digest it if you're eating at a kitchen table or a dining room table because the fact is your body is recognizing that it has to be alert while on the road, and hopefully it's acting as if it wants to be alert on the road, which means that it's not going to break down that food in the same way, which can lead people to sort of having uh, dysregulated appetites or um, ways that they could actually metabolize those calories in a different way. And also there's fascinating genetic research looking at just the receptors and, and DNA of how we're beginning to understand uh, ADHD and all the different ways it overlaps with various issues, one of which is the issues of, with obesity or with eating disorders. And in fact, there is some overlap genetically, that there are dopamine receptors that we see in ADD, um, what's known as the DRD4 receptor, that we also see implicated in obesity. So we're just beginning to really understand this, the relationship, but what's important for those of you out there with ADHD who struggle with food is that this is not an issue of willpower, it's not an issue of weakness or anything like that, that there is, that there are a lot of different factors that really uh, make it very difficult for someone with ADD to manage uh, a healthy eat, eating habit and also can make it very easy for people to develop an eating disorder, especially where food then becomes very connected to body image and how people feel about their appearance and their body, which can induce a lot of feelings of shame. And as mentioned before, people with ADD have very low levels of dopamine, and food becomes a very easy, accessible way of spiking up those levels of dopamine in the brain. So I'm ready to basically answer any questions that anybody has, and that's sort of the kind of the, the, the quick run of the different factors of how ADHD uh, can predispose people to having eating disorders, and I'm open to any questions people have.
Thank you, Dr. Olivardia. Um, we are now ready for questions, as you just said. Uh, I would like to remind everyone that uh, we'd like to keep the questions uh, related to ADHD and eating disorders. And uh, we do have uh, questions. Is if someone has both ADHD and is diagnosed with an eating disorder, are the conditions treated at the same time? That's a great question. I would say absolutely that they have to be treated at the same time. And I think one of the problems that I have seen in individuals who have both, uh, who have been treated by someone who, let's say, doesn't know or understand ADHD, is that the treatment isn't going to work. Um, that ideally what you want is someone who's an eating disorder specialist, and if that same person also uh, specializes or understands ADHD, and if they don't, to still see that eating disorder specialist, but then also have perhaps uh, an ADHD coach or uh, another ADHD therapist that can at least consult with that eating disorder specialist. Because what I see that is, that's frustrating is you know, clients who have struggled for years with eating disorders and who come to me and they say, you know, I, I've been labeled as treatment resistant, which I hate that phrase. Um, and you know, I've been told by therapists that I must really not want to get better because I am being told what I need to do and I, I just can't seem to do it. And I ask them, well, what do you mean? And they have a hard time making appointments. They can't write the food logs or they lose the food logs. All the things that you would traditionally do in treating eating disorders that what has to happen is when you understand that a person has ADHD is to, you have to meet them at that point and be creative as a therapist and figuring out, okay, it's not that they don't want to get better because this can be a, a tormenting issue for people. It's how do we understand that asking someone with ADHD to write down every time that they eat um, is going to be more of a challenge. And so, but they still have to be accountable for that. You just have to find another way of doing it. And so I've had my ADD patients speak into their telephone um, and record, for example, their food log, and they bring it into session and press play, and I hear everything that they've eaten, you know, over uh, the week. And so it's something, you know, as simple as that, that um, if you meet the ADHD where it is, and understanding that how sometimes the eating disorder can be triggered by negative body image and, and things like that, and sometimes it can be triggered by the fact that someone's just bored and they're just looking for stimulation and to help validate that person and understanding that that's what it's about. Thank you. Uh, someone also wanted to know uh, what's the best way to find a professional uh, who has the expertise in providing treatment for ADHD and eating disorders? Well, for eating disorders, I would recommend the Academy for Eating Disorders, which is uh, the probably the national organization of eating disorder specialists. And on their website, they have a treatment provider list broken down by state of people who specialize in the treatment of eating disorders. And as far as ADHD, organizations like CHAD, uh, like the Attention Deficit Disorder Association, um, are good resources, again, that have treatment provider lists of individuals in your state that treat ADHD. Unfortunately, there isn't a resource I can point you to that has sort of people who specialize in both ADHD and eating disorders. Um, I, I I'm in the Boston area, and the, I don't know anybody in, in this area that really has a lot of knowledge in, in both. And so, unfortunately, I think for a lot of people, it may require them having a team 
of at least a couple of people that, that can treat it. But it is important to make sure it's with an eating disorder that you're seeing an eating disorder specialist, and for ADHD that you are seeing someone who really understands ADHD and has a lot of experience with it. Thank you. Uh, are, are stimulant medications uh, safe for people with both ADHD and anorexia? Great question. Stimulant medication, you know, a lot of the research, um, you know, would, would uh, people would hypothesize that the stimulant medication might be contraindicated for eating disorders. Now, I would say that a lot of the research that's out there of the use of stimulant medication for the treatment of eating disorders focuses more on bulimia nervosa and binge eating disorder. And those studies have found that it can be extremely helpful. That Now, one of the side effects, of course, of stimulant medication is that it reduces your appetite. But for people with, that I've worked with and people that have been represented in the scientific literature with both bulimia and binge eating show that it doesn't work in just suppressing the appetite. It actually works at regulating the appetite at normal levels. But also it works because the stimulant medication helps at in terms of the ADHD traits and symptoms that lend themselves to developing the eating disorder. So if somebody is less impulsive, if they're better able to manage time, if they're more focused, if they uh, don't feel sort of the emptiness that comes with feeling bored, that they're less likely to binge eat. Um, if they're better able to focus uh, to do a task, then they're better able to kind of manage their food intake. So in those ways, the stimulant medications uh, wholeheartedly support a very positive relationship. Now with anorexia, it's a little bit different because with anorexia, of course, the problem is, is that the person is not eating enough and that they're at a very unhealthy weight. And the use of stimulant medication is often contraindicated for people with anorexia because you don't want their appetite to be any more reduced. In addition, now if one could argue that, well, if the medication actually helps them, if part of their the development of their anorexia is the ADHD and the stimulant medication helps the ADHD, uh, would that help the anorexia? The, the answer is probably no, because what studies show with the use of any medication with anorexia is that when someone is in a starved state, when they're malnourished, the body does not metabolize medications in the same way as when it's in a healthier weight. And this is the problem with anorexia, is that 15 to 20 percent of people with anorexia die from the illness, partly because there is no medication that, I mean, not that medications aren't helpful, but they certainly are not as helpful as what you would see even with bulimia nervosa and binge eating disorder. Primarily the use of SSRIs or antidepressants that have been shown to be very useful in the treatment of bulimia and binge eating have not been robustly found to be helpful with anorexia. And the reason being primarily is that when the body is starved that way, it does not break down and metabolize the medication the same way. So we don't even think that stimulant medication, um, that if it either A, would not metabolize the same way, or B, might actually have the opposite effect where it could uh, potentially really rev up somebody and reduce their appetite further. And a lot of uh, girls and guys that I've worked with with eating disorders, sometimes with anorexia, have often abused Ritalin, Adderall, and medications like that to suppress the appetite. So generally, that contraindicated until somebody is at least of normal weight. Thank you. Uh, the next question is, uh, due to my daughter's ADHD and ODD, it's difficult to get her to take guidance from me. 
she uses her own money to buy unhealthy foods. I only uh, feed her healthy foods, uh, but she eats unhealthy at school and at her friend's house. She's pre-diabetic and she will still will not take my guidance. Do you have any suggestions as to how to uh, help her uh, eat healthy? Sure, it's a very, it, it can be very, very difficult uh, for parents and particularly when you have a child of the age where they start making their own choices about what they eat. Um, and that obviously is of, of high concern when your child is pre-diabetic. I mean, one of the ways that I would encourage parents is to, you know, speak with their kids about the realities of uh, how putting food into their body will affect them in the long term. In general, it's very tough for any teenager to, to even conceive of themselves as being 30, 40, 50 years old. It's just that's, that's part of the adolescent experience is having adolescent immortality where you just feel like you're going to be young forever. That's even more true for people with ADHD. It's very hard for them to even imagine the next moment, let alone 10 years, 20 years down the line. So I, I would sort of talk about it by saying, look, you know, I'm, it's, it's not about just eating healthy for the sake of just eating healthy. It's the reality that if you become diabetic, this is what your life will be like. And these are all of the things that you have to manage that right now you don't have to manage. And there's a statistic, and I don't have the number off the top of my head, but there's a statistic that a, a diabetic has to do uh, X more number of things in a day because to manage their diabetes than someone without diabetes. And to know that that's a very hard thing, and particularly for someone with ADHD. And would she want to add that to sort of her life repertoire? And also, you know, it's not to encourage a black and white way of looking at food. It's totally understandable why, you know, junk food tastes good for a reason. I mean, that we can't deny that potato chips are yummy and ice cream is really good. And so it's not about cutting and depriving oneself of those foods or feeling like one isn't worthy of eating that because that could lead to again, a very unhealthy relationship with food. It's saying that all of these things have to be kind of taken in and eaten in moderation. There's nothing wrong with eating them provided that they're, eat it, they're eaten in very controlled portions so that it's keeping you healthy. I would also really try to engage the child in asking them, do they find that there are things that, that they're not able to do or things that they find more difficult to do because of of their health status or because of their weight and try to almost kind of work with them so if they're saying you know I, I run out of breath easily uh, because of my weight as as un helping them understand that the food they put in their body does affect the functional use of their body that they will be they are limiting themselves if they're not eating healthy and then food becomes actually a much bigger issue than it has to be that right now if, uh, this parent is making it an issue because this parent is concerned that their child is going to tread into very dangerous medical territory of developing diabetes. But as much as that might be bothersome to the child, that for the child to begin to understand that food will become an even bigger issue if you have diabetes because it means you really have to watch what you eat or else you're going to end up in the hospital and it becomes a very uh, very, very tough life and a very hard life. And also maybe working with the, the child as to developing, you know, ways of, of eating foods and, and good alternatives. I think that when kids often hear, and when I say kids, I mean teenagers as well, when they often hear healthy eating, 
some of them think like tofu and foods that are unappealing and don't taste good and perhaps working with a nutritionist which can sometimes kids have a better way of hearing advice like that from an outside party than their own parents working with a nutritionist who can say well you know if you're craving something very sweet that's understandable but instead of having you know this which has you know, 300 calories you can really satisfy that craving for sweetness with this thing, which might be only 100 calories. And every bit like that counts, that again, over a week's time, a month's time, a year's time, you could be helping really at, at managing your weight. And at least it gives that child the feeling that they have options, because I think part of it also is this almost this rebellion of, I don't want someone telling me that I can't eat something because that makes me feel different. And as an adolescent, especially, the last thing we want to, to to feel like is that we're sort of alienated or different in some way, um, but to help them understand that they don't have to feel different, that they can still enjoy eating certain things, but um, but to have some mindfulness around it. Thank you. And uh, you've touched on this a uh, couple uh, in a couple of the uh, statements that you made, but uh, a number of audience members wants to know also. Um, can you please share some specific strategies uh, to manage impulsive, impulsive eating or binge eating? Definitely. I would say the most, the, probably the most important thing that you can do is make sure you're eating at least three meals a day, if not more. And so anywhere from three to five meals a day. Now, if you're having five meals a day, obviously you're going to have smaller meals throughout the day. But the, the irony is that we live in a culture that spends billions, I mean the diet industry, the weight loss industry is a billion dollar industry and it comes down to the same thing. We need to watch what we eat and we need to exercise. No drug, no this or no that, anything that is too good to be true is too good to be true. And yet as consumers we are always looking for sort of the, the quick fix. And the reality is that in order to manage your weight and to curb any binge eating behavior, you have to eat all the time. And that sounds really odd to say, but it means that you should never be hungry. If your body, if your stomach growls, that means not only that you're hungry, but it means you should have eaten at least an hour ago. If you're thirsty, it means that you are already dehydrated. You should have drank water at least an hour ago. And so you want to structure your day so basically your stomach never growls and you're never really feeling a sense of thirst because you're already eating and drinking. And that's the other thing I should say just a quick note about drinking is that you know a lot of people with ADD don't drink enough water that they per they either prefer their calories in the form of food or in the form of sodas and caffeinated beverages and we need water. I mean you should drink enough water that your urine is literally clear. That's what that's how you know you're properly hydrated. Um, so that's the beginning. Um, never skipping breakfast that if if there's any meal you don't want to skip, it's breakfast. It really is the most important meal of the day. And having breakfast and particularly incorporating a protein in your breakfast really helps set up the metabolism in a way that prevents any crashes in the day and helps you make better choices for the next meal that you have. And that could be eggs, it could be peanut butter. I've had uh, parents feed their children uh, chicken uh, for breakfast 
for fish, um, those are perfectly fine. I mean, they're very, very high in protein, as long as that high protein doesn't come with a lot of fat. So, like chicken, you know, fried chicken nuggets is not going to be a, a healthy breakfast, but perhaps grilled chicken is could be a really good breakfast. Um, if your child, a lot of cereals are actually terrible for, for kids because they're very high in sugar and carbs. You eat a bowl of cereal, you're going to be hungry a half an hour later. Now, if you have cereal with uh, bananas in it with that you put fruit in or nuts, then you're going to have a more substantial meal. So really making sure that you, if you have to set your alarm on your phone where every couple hours it goes off and says, have you eaten something? So you have at least three meals a day and making sure you're having a snack in between. And a snack could be an apple, uh, a small bag of almonds, um, you know, but again, you want foods that you actually like. Don't force yourself to eat things that, that you don't like, otherwise it's just not going to work. Um, but the key is never to deprive yourself. We live in a culture that says that you have to deprive yourself in order to be healthy or to look good, and it couldn't be further from the truth. In fact, one of the contributing factors to obesity, other than bigger portion sizes and, and sleep deprivation, is yo-yo dieting. When people lose a, ch a ton of weight, very quickly, they're going to gain it plus some, and that's actually one of the contributing factors to obesity. So also watching emotionally. When do you notice that you binge eat? So e there are people that even when they regulate their eating will still binge eat because of other factors as I discussed earlier. So if you notice that when you're stressed, you're going to eat more, or be proactive about it. If you have a stressful day at work, know that once you get into your car that you're going to be tempted to go through the fast food drive through and, and know, okay, you know what, I can't do that because I will regret it afterwards. I'll feel there's a great deal of shame and guilt that people with uh, eating disorders have, particularly after they, they binge eat. So being aware of what your triggers are. If you're bored, to have a list of alternative activities that you can do that are at your disposal. Because the other thing about food is it's always there. It's always there. It's legal. It's not like drugs that are illegal that you have to really work at, at getting. Food is always there. And it makes it in some ways one of the most widely abused substances for people. So having things that are that are at your disposal that could be things that stimulate you, that relieve you from that boredom, um, and, and whatnot. In terms of exercise, which is also a very important component, and exercise can also help reduce binge eating, is do something that you really enjoy. You know, don't be walking on a treadmill if that bores uh, you to no end. It's just not going to, you're not going to stick with it. Do something that you enjoy and have it be something that, that's physically active. Um, and allow yourself to eat everything, but just be uh, have moderation over it. If you like cheesecake, it's okay to have cheesecake, but don't have you know half of a cheesecake. You just cut a small slice of it. Um, another thing that can often be detrimental to people in their relationship with food is setting overly restrictive dietary rules. Like I should never have cheesecake. That would be bad. That that's not going to be helpful. The more you deprive yourself of something, the more you're going to end up craving it. And then when you do eat it, it it suffers from what we call the what the hell phenomenon that, okay, I already ate the cheesecake, I broke the rule, I might as well eat the entire cheesecake. And if you allow yourself the latitude of being able to eat everything, but just eating it in, in moderation, you're going to do much better in the long run.
and then watching your sleep. That's the other important thing. Um, really managing your sleep habits. Thank you. Uh, we have another question. I've heard there are supplements that help with serotonin levels uh, that can help with appetite control and sugar cravings. Is this true? And if so, what are these supplements? I would not recommend any supplement. I think that, you know, again, there's a very slippery slope with a lot of these, um, you know, supplements that are out there that claim to control appetite or claim to, to boost this or, or boost that. Um, the, you know, reality, what's important with supplements to understand is that none of them are regulated by the Food and Drug Administration. So there are a lot of products that are out there on the market that claim to do things that they just don't do at all, that they don't, they neither help you nor harm you. And then there are supplements out there that may have some effect, but they also carry with them harmful consequences. And we've seen that already with things like ephedrine, which um, in the late 90s was a supplement that you could get it in at any health food store. And then people started having cardiac arrhythmias and uh, cardiac arrests and heart attacks because basically it was a concentrated form of speed and now they're banned from these supplements, but people had, unfortunately, had to die before that were to happen. So when you have a substance or a supplement that does create, that does sort of reduce appetite and things like that, you have to remember that you're, you're messing with something that is kind of natural in the body, and it can often lead to the uh, very unintended consequences. Um, and we've seen this with a lot of weight loss drugs that are out there, Fenfen being one of them, Fenfluramine many years ago um, started causing you know, heart issues in, in people. So I, I would not recommend any supplement um, that, would that would claim to boost serotonin levels or, or anything that would eventually you know, help with appetite, um, I think that that could really send someone down a, a pretty dangerous road. It really comes down to watching your food intake and regulating your physical activity. Thank you. Uh, we have time for one more question. And uh, the question is, are there healthy ways to boost dopamine uh, in a healthy, balanced way? Oh, definitely. I mean, any behavior that is sort of exciting to you or stimulating uh, that you find really demand your attention and focus are probably activities that are boosting dopamine levels. Uh, like I'm, I'm a huge music fan, for example, and there's no question, I mean, I said even as a teenager that there's something very, very chemical when I listen to music that really is, um, is probably self-medicating. Um, and that's not going to be the case for everybody, though. For someone else, it could be exercise can boost dopamine levels. Uh, it could be, you know, playing a, a sport. It could be engaging in um, a, a real competitive activity or any activity that basically that you can find yourself feeling very connected to or focused um, on can boost those dopamine levels. Talking can boost dopamine levels, sort of engaging um, with other individuals. Um, can all be very natural activities. So basically, to find an activity or activities that you find when you're doing them, you're pretty connected to, that you're very focused in, that you feel a sense of um, reward or a sense of accomplishment in are activities that are probably regulating levels of, of dopamine. Uh, the activities that are not healthy, of course,
course, would be any of the addictive behaviors, um, certain drugs, like marijuana is the most widely abused substance for people with ADHD. And one of the reasons is that it definitely elevates levels of dopamine in the brain. Um, you know, food addiction, sexual addictions, gambling, all of those things are kind of highs that might be increasing dopamine but are obviously not healthy. So to think about I, the main question being what is it that you love to do? What is it that you feel passionate about? What gets you in a zone? And to do more of that provided that it's, it's healthy and it's safe for you. Dr. Olivardia, thank you very much for taking the time to be with us. Uh, there are actually quite a few more questions that unfortunately we won't have time to get to uh, today. So perhaps uh, sometime in the future we might uh, have to revisit this topic again if you're willing. Oh, I would love to. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you. And to our audience, if you have any additional questions uh, that we were unable to get to today, please feel free to contact the National Resource Center at 800-233-4050 to speak to a health information specialist. Thank you again for participating in this presentation and please enjoy the rest of your day.